right, welcome back to another episode of the Start Well Podcast. Uh, I am your host with the most, or something, <laughs> the only host on this podcast, so I do have the most. Uh, it's uh, Kasim Virgi back again, the CEO and founder of Start Well. For those of you just tuning in for the first time, this is the 18th episode, so do go to iTunes or wherever you're listening to this on and uh, and scroll back through all of our episodes. There's tons of fun listening with entrepreneurs and creatives alike based mainly in Toronto, circulating either in or around Startwell, which is a wonderful incubator, accelerator, co-working space mashup um, spread between two heritage buildings. Come visit us if you get the chance. Drop in for a cappuccino. We've got a complimentary cafe and we're right on King Street West in downtown Toronto. So for this time around, uh, I'm going to have a very interesting uh, conversation, I'm quite sure, because I know the man in front of me, and uh, we always do. Uh, his name is Ujwal, and he's going to tell us about his company, uh, which is called... Motive Base. There we go. It sounds like a hip-hop group from the <laughs> 90s. I love that name. Well, for a long time, we jokingly would tell people that we spoke to that it's got the hipster spelling. There's no E in Motive. Pretty cool. But it was because there was no domain. There was no domain, <laughs> as usual. Uh, so yeah, thanks for having me. I'm basically a cultural anthropologist. Uh, I started this company three and a half years ago, along with my business partner Jason, and we have built uh, basically what we call an AI anthropologist. We use a machine in order to study consumer culture and help our clients, which ranges from. Fortune 500 through to really interesting, well-funded startups mm -hmm. that can afford us um, to basically identify, track demand spaces so that they can make the right research development bets, innovation bets at the right time. Um, so walk me through that because there's a lot there for me to digest. I'm sure our listeners yeah. also are kind of unpacking that right now. Um, maybe the best way to unpack that is you said an AI anthropologist. Yes. So... Um, I guess the first side of it is tell me about anthropology, your understanding of it as it's applied to the problem that your solution solves. Yeah. Uh, and then maybe we could talk about like how it does it or, or a couple of case studies, what the client experience kind of is. Yeah, the type of anthropology, obviously, that I'm referring to is cultural anthropology. So the study of, of sort of modes, rituals, habits of groups of consumers, groups of people. Obviously, we're focused on consumer culture in yep. particular, but really what we've done is built a machine that can do a form of research that at least nowadays is very is a very popular form of research for innovation purposes which is ethnography mm -hmm. so what we've really done is built a technology that can conduct an ethnography so a machine that can do that by examining the natural conversations that people have on so it's the language internet. processing it's language processing and i should qualify for listeners who may not know what ethnography is, really it is the art and science of observing people in their natural setting mm -hmm. in order to understand three really important things, cultural, economic, mm -hmm. and social practices. Mm -hmm. uh, so in essence, understanding not just what people say, but how they say it, and then why they say those things. And the why part really is about understanding where people come from. You know, what are their social political, uh, what is their social political background, their upbringing? Right. What has landed them to this particular situation? And I'll give you a, a classic example. One of the first 
jobs I had out of school when I was living in India was to follow around a group of amateur wildlife photographers. Mm -hmm. By the way, a couple of them ended up getting published on National Geographic and okay. now are, are, are big time photographers and videographers, which is quite cool. But back then I was following these guys around going from one ecotourism resort to another. And I was doing it for a major camera manufacturer, but the purpose of it was to understand the things that we will never understand if we ask them questions. Mm -hmm. So people have different norms, different rituals. So for example, when they get into a Jeep and they're driving into the forest and in this particular case, this photographer's hunting for Bengal tigers. And it's very hard to find them in a rural part of India. And you may spot one in a month. Mm -hmm. So you're just constantly on the, on the lookout. And there are these rituals that they go through in setting up their camera. They do it for a particular reason. And different photographers have different rituals. Mm -hmm. And their rituals are driven by not just where they, what photography school they went to, but it's also driven by where they grew up, where they came from, how they value that piece of technology and what kinds of values and beliefs drive them at the end of the day. And that was a huge learning experience for me. I mean, back then I was an apprentice to a real anthropologist back then who, who taught me everything I, I know today. But but it's those kinds of experiences. And, and really what we've done is said, OK, in today's world, we don't necessarily need to be in the physical world spending Back then, I spent nine months doing this project. Hmm. Uh, we don't need to be in the physical world doing that because people are burying their souls online every second. And you can scrape millions of these conversations. So Granted. how do we train? Okay, yeah, you continue. And then I've got a couple of questions about this digitized you know, behavior yeah, modes. So, so really, it came down to training a machine to do the kind of observational, immersive research work that a trained cultural anthropologist would do right. in field. Right. So, okay, here's my big question is really, you know, being someone who has worked in um, myriads of different kind of interface design applications yeah. over the last decade and a half. Um, the question of how the context colors the conversation is, yeah. is definitely, you know, omnipresent, I think, online. Yeah. Um, so how do you as a professional cultural anthropologist and then mm -hmm. you talk about motivation and your solution but like how do you afford for that or you know create or calculate yeah. the bias kind of or, or extract it out of your data set yeah it's 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 a it's a really really important point context is so crucial there's a reason why i think immersive ethnography is so powerful is that you are in the context of the user so you know, going back to that earlier example, the reason I was following these photographers around was because I wanted to just be a fly on the wall. I pretended to be a photographer, just hanging out with them, getting to know them, being friends with them. And, and one day they just discovered, there's no film in your camera. <laughs> Who are you? Yeah. Why Who are you are here? You? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but the, the purpose of that was to get an unadulterated look into some of the idiosyncrasies and then to be able to ask the right questions so that you can link somebody's beliefs to their behaviors. So I'll give you a really funny example. And this is, uh, this is uh, very, very true in the United States. If you meet a man in the US who's wearing leather shoes with tassels on them, yeah. there's a 90% chance that he is a Republican. 
So this is a linkage between political values, yeah. political beliefs, and how you action on what you buy, what you wear, how you appear. And this linkage, this type of linkage, yeah. exists right down to the, the brand of water we choose to buy. Yeah. And, and so being in context allows us to A, understand what's going on in that context, and then B, ask the right questions in order to get at the background behind it. Right. And that's, of course, the challenge that obviously in the online world we had to solve for mm -hmm. because we can't really ask those questions and we didn't want to. We wanted it to be sort of unadulterated so that, you know, we could learn about everything from erectile dysfunction through to, um, you know, what what kind of flavoring the people put into their water to make it more interesting. Right. Um, so the idea is... Well, I guess today you're probably liberated from just analyzing text because anything can be transcribed with fair amounts of accuracy. Yeah. Um, typically, what are the forms of data that you put into your machine? Yeah, we actually still very much focus on text, but in particular focus on what we call long form or quality text. So okay. we focus on platforms that enable people to have longer form discussions where they can actually bear their souls. Uh, and generally we find, I mean, we've done a decade of social sciences research around this, but generally we find if people hide behind a pseudonym there's a much better chance of getting to the real stuff the mm -hmm. rich stuff yeah, uh, and I was, they'll express themselves more openly exactly and i was using the ed example for a reason because you know <laughs> you don't no need guy, to go there if you don't want no to. guy's gonna be on facebook <laughs> and say hey i have ed can you recommend some solutions or i think i have ED. yeah How it's do like I my know? friend has ed <laughs> yeah, and right. i know this because we're really good friends <laughs> right exactly so and so we rely on on these platforms where a people have these long form discussions b it's easier to actually understand context so for example let's say i start a conversation about eating clean yeah and somebody else says what do you mean what is clean and there's another response and you know there's this i don't know 400 responses in a thread about clean eating we had to train our technology to do what an anthropologist would do in our scenario, mm -hmm. which is to say, even though out of these 400 responses, only 300 of them actually mention the word clean, the other 100 don't even mention the word clean, mm -hmm. they all still are in the same context. It's as if these 400 people have sat around a dinner table and had a conversation about clean eating. Yeah. And then they're they all... all creating meaning. Right. And they're giving meaning to what clean means in culture. Our machine needs to tap into that yeah. and understand it. And that was the most challenging part about building this. How long did it take to build this machine? For me personally, this has been a decade-long journey. Yeah. But in particular, the last four years is really where we accelerated development. Yeah. The company actually launched um, just under four years ago, and the technology launched finally June of 2018. Okay. So, it, it, and we're really now, now we're in 2019, we're entering a phase where the technology is doing exactly what we needed it to do. It took some iterations and, you know, obviously it took some patient clients, but now we're at a stage where, you know, it's plug and play and we, and we can do a lot of problem solving for people huh. in, in hours that normally would have taken them months. And so is this the sort of thing that can like, you know, I, I dump a call log into it? Even uh -huh. I know that's shitty data, or it's uh, no, maybe it's, it's good data. You know, it's it's funny. So our out of the box software yeah. just looks and scrapes the internet. Okay.
but you can also put custom data into it. So that's a great example where we've had clients do everything from asking us to link people's motivations between uh, call center data, yep. call logs, um, data from you know e-commerce platforms, so past purchases, things people have searched for on a website, right down to content that they've read. Right. And it's amazing to see the linkages. You know, this is a this is a classic example. But are you a big uh, Prime user, Amazon Prime user? A very big. Yeah. Same here. So how good do you think, like personally, how yeah. how effective is their recommendation engine for you? Oh, that's interesting. Because their recommendation, their recommendations yeah. are delivered in a few different ways. Yeah. So, on the email front, yeah. not as good as the live responses on products based on if I keep drilling down, like let's say there's a list of 50 things yeah. and I look at four of those 50 things. Yeah. Um, what I have noticed is on the results that are given to me underneath each thing, the more I look at similar things, yeah. it is getting better. Yeah. Uh, and the best thing is on the bundling. I think like they've done a great job of looking at, especially for generic products or mass appeal products as yeah. opposed to niche products. Yeah. Niche products, it still seems to be a bit weird, like for electronics, music items, uh, I've, I've taken a look at all sorts of like, just when I'm for interest sake, kind of browsing as opposed to when yeah. I need to buy something, Yeah, you know, and the purchase decision, when it's the easier the purchase decision is, uh, the more relevant the results will be. Yeah. So what you're describing is, is a really great example because in essence, what Amazon has done really well, and they're clearly the leader in this is applied, you know, an AI and machine learning based algorithm. Yeah. But ultimately it is logic and math based. Right. So what it does is it says, okay, so this is how Kasim is browsing. This is what he's bought in the past. And, and here are other users that have bought similar things. And based on that, I'm going to generate a series of recommendations. Uh, and the reason why, and I noticed this too live, the results are better than after. So for yeah. example, after I check out, it says, how about also these products? Yeah. I've rarely ever bought anything or found anything that's matching. Right. And the reason is that it's easier to do it live because it, it's tracking what you're searching for. It can see where your clicks are going. So the math and the logic works better there than it does after the fact or before the fact. Yeah. And that's just because there's one aspect missing, which is people's beliefs. Mm. And this is where social sciences comes into play and where big data can play such a huge role. What we've learned as a company and as a team is people's beliefs link product A in category A to product B in category B. It's not all logic. And it's, it's not all logic. Yeah. So I'll give you a classic example. And this is you know actual analysis from one of the major retail clients that we have, uh, where we know that you know if a user buys um, liners for reusable diapers, mm -hmm. that logically, that would mean that they're environmentally conscious. These are adult diapers or child diapers? Child diapers, I should have clarified. <laughs> logically, that would mean that... In case is, anyone's wondering. Right. And this is a parent that is environmentally conscious. Yeah. So likely will also buy environmentally conscious cleaning products. Sure, sure. Guess what? They buy the hardcore... Chemical crap. Chemical yeah. stuff. Yeah. I can't say crap because many of my clients I make can say crap. Stuff. Yeah. I can say shit. <laughs> um, but um, they can buy and, and they will buy the hardcore cleaning products in order to make sure the, the stuff is cleaned. 
Now, the reason why we identified that is because the belief linkage between the two is actually not about environmentalism. Yeah. It's actually one of health and safety mm-hmm. for the child. Right. And health and safety in their mind is on one hand, there's a certain really bad chemical in a diaper that I want to avoid. But on the other hand, I need to clean the stuff because I'm using plop diapers sure. and it better be cleaned properly and sanitized properly. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, this is where there's a missing element to, and this is just, I'm using an e-com example, but the entire business world has this largely missing element of the social sciences. Of course. And it's only now because of people like Simon Sinek, who don't, by the way, don't even talk about social sciences, but they, what they've helped people like me and our industry do is help organizations realize that human beings cannot be generalized in math equations. Yeah. And that the idiosyncrasies are actually not idiosyncrasies. There is logic to them, but the logic is driven by the social sciences, by right. an understanding of you know, people's psychology and their beliefs rather than just, you know, life stage or income or, you know, gender or what have you. I think that's the most fascinating part. It is. About this industry. And then, I mean, so I know it's young, but uh, yeah. the motive base AI. Yeah. Well, firstly, does it have a name? Uh, it, it doesn't. Um, it's not like Alfred or something. <laughs> no, we, we haven't tried to give it a name or anything like that. And it, it's certainly not. Um, what was that really annoying? Uh, cl- Clippy? Oh, Clippy. The, Clippy, the really annoying one that Microsoft had back in the day. You know, someone once, uh, after hearing a talk that I gave at a, at a conference around open source content management systems, yeah, they were inspired by what I had said about uh, automating context yeah. uh, and offering users contextual interfaces. Yeah. And they went back, they thought about the problem after I gave the talk, and uh, they created a Clippy for Drupal. <laughs> <laughs> and they called it Kasim, Kasimi or something like that. Really? It was an ode to my talk. Was, wow. Yeah. That's actually amazing. Kind of a weird anecdote there. Wow. Yeah. You're famous. <laughs> I was. I'm in the for presence of royalty. <laughs> Open source royalty. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's awesome. But yeah, like, so Clippy. Yes, you don't want to name it Clippy. No, we don't want anything like Clippy. Vikram. Right? I think you should call Vikram, it Vikram. Yeah. <laughs> Vikram would be great. Let's just, for the purpose of this discussion, call him Vikram. So, okay, I have a question about Vikram. Yeah. yeah. So you said uh, there is a turnkey kind of solution that you offer. There's yeah. a plug and play kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's two sides to the optionality, or there's an optionality of the data input. It could be uh, on-demand data, whatever you want to put sure. into it, and then what it's crawled the web. Yeah. So if you're constantly crawling the web, if Vikram's out there scouring the internet all the time, <laughs> yeah. looking for the juice, yeah. Um, there's got to be insights that Vikram is deriving from what he's finding. Yeah. He or she, Vikram. Yeah. I'm not going to put a gender on Vikram. Yeah. Because um, I'm not that guy, man. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Although it is a pretty masculine name in India, but sure. <laughs> Vikram the girl. <laughs> Vikrami. Yeah. So he, she uh, finds this, you know, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, how are you, if at all, Packaging those insights, making them available. Yeah. Is this also another offering of motive-based, do you sell kind of industry report type stuff? Yeah, the, the reason we've just stayed away from it is because we're actually trying to get away from the static mindset that the industry has. Uh, primarily because we find, I mean, coming back to the whole context question, right, that you started with. Right. Uh, I'll give you an example. You know, client A is looking at 
clean eating, but looks at it in the context of sugar and yep. impact on sugar. Client B wants to look at clean eating, but in the context of processing and the level of processing that goes into packaged food, the results are so different. Right. Because, you know, consumers are, uh, or all of us as human beings are, uh, are complex beings. And, you know, um, I have candy on day one in context A, but will not touch candy in context B. And, and I think that's really what we're trying to help our clients understand. And, and the reason why we've created the technology is so clients can either just quickly use it themselves and run these searches, contextual searches, or they can rely on what we call our PhD concierge. Okay. Uh, my business partner wanted to call it our team of PhD butlers. Butlers. Um, but as you, can imagine, as you can imagine, our, our, our doctors were very disappointed <laughs> and, and upset about that name. Um, and so a PhD concierge it is, but, but really that's, that's really the function of our, our research team is, um, you know, for, for the hundred odd clients that we have, more than half of them now are using our support in order to basically help them track an ongoing mandate so that they can identify what they consider to be demand spaces yeah. either early enough or understand a shift in a demand space. Yeah. You know, a classic example is if I look at the probiotic landscape. Okay. Last year, probiotics was all about supplementation. This year, it has become also about fermentation. Hmm. But it's not just about fermentation. What that's teaching us is that what the consumer is realizing is they actually need to change their dietary habits. Right. That's what they've become open to. Supplementation is easy. I can pop a pill in the morning. I can drink a bottle of kombucha off of the store. But fermentation or creating or making or introducing fermented foods into your diet or baking or whatever it is that you're doing is effort, planning. That's a huge shift in the mindset of the consumer. It's a huge shift for the industry mm -hmm. around gut health itself. To be able to track that, understand what specifically about that is a value, to be able to quantify it, that's really where we shine. Mm. That's our, so that's why we work a lot on the front end of innovation. So let's take a step back and talk about yeah. the company. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> what is the history of the company? It's yeah. within four years, I guess you say? Yeah, just under four. We, we complete four in June. Yeah. And uh, what, uh, what has been, I guess, tell me a little bit about, in a nutshell, yeah. what the growth of the company has looked like in terms of anything, in terms of yeah. teaming up, in terms of staffing up. What is the motivation behind the kind of like forming it? Uh, yeah. Is it just two of you partners or who owns it? Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, obviously we, we do have um, a number of shareholders, but, uh, but yeah, my business partner Jason and I started this just uh, around four years ago. And we started it because we, we had both kind of quit our jobs and we were trying to figure out what's next. And I had been brewing this in my head for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I remember we met with, uh, somebody in the industry, and we come from advertising, somebody in the advertising industry, and and they said, you just go do it on your own, man. What are you waiting for? And, and we kind of walked away and grabbed a beer and said, okay, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was really the start of it. And uh, our goal from day one was to not go the traditional startup route. Uh, we thought, you know, to hell with trying to go raise money from angels and VCs and seed and... You know, yeah. Series A and all that. Uh, instead, we said, you know, if this has value, yeah. we should be able to sell 
a packaged product. Yes, mm -hmm. we don't have the back end yet. We're going to manually do the work, but we should be able to sell it first. So let's validate the IP first. Mm -hmm. So we had the IP, we went into market and we sold. And in year one, we did a pretty decent um, uh, seven figure revenue. Mm -hmm. uh, and we said, oh, wow, we have something on our hands here because not only have we done some really fascinating projects, but we've actually also now started working with some really massive Fortune 500 companies uh, that are relying on us on for really interesting and powerful initiatives that they have going on. Uh, and, um, you know, the more revenue we brought in, the, the more we were able to obviously invest in building the technology. So the back end of the technology was always in our heads, in spreadsheets, slowly translated into code and, right. you know, built up. But the result is that we were able to bootstrap the company mm -hmm. and we were profitable in the first three months. No, that's phenomenal. Yeah. And, and it just it just created a different mindset and different approach. We didn't, we never had to, and this is something that, you know, I have great debates with my startup friends on this. I just don't agree with the with the traditional startup model, which is undervalue yourself mm -hmm. just to get in the door, right? And then figure out how to make more money along the way. Yeah. And because you have, and then you're reliant on funding because there's no way you can be profitable if you're undervaluing. And you know, it's just it's you're you're you know, sort of a self fulfilling prophecy, if you will. And one of the books that really changed changed our minds was a book by Oren Claff called Pitch Anything. Okay. Um, where he basically talks about how the worst thing you can do for yourself is put yourself in what he describes as a beta position. Mm. And a beta position is, is really nothing other than saying, don't undervalue yourself. Right. If you believe what you're doing is a value, go sell it at what it's valued at. Mm -hmm. Because if you undervalue, it's, it's next to impossible to then crawl your way back out of that. Yeah, because val exactly. Yeah, you can't change the perception of your customer. Yeah. So easily and at whim as to now improve the next quarter's you know results immediately. You have to go yeah. get more customers. Then you get into a scale problem, which changes what your product can actually even grow into. Yeah. Exactly, and so so it's been. I mean, it, I'm not saying this to say that our model is is the right model. I'm just saying it's an alternative and it's a really viable alternative because we've, we're now seeing many other startups follow, uh, follow this model and do really, really well. well I, I look, I totally agree with you. Cause I think the start well itself, you know, it, it comes, uh, not only is this company, uh, born out of the same, uh, motivation, right. you know, and with the same kind of uh, value for operational freedoms as well that you know bootstrapping gives you, but uh, it's something that we also kind of generally teach, uh, or I teach here with some of the startups that I'm mentoring. Um, the idea is for me about capital, yeah, right. And it's not about financial capital; it's about capital in general. Any venture needs to understand what its capital uh, inputs are, yeah, and how quickly that capital turns revenue, profit, yeah. and creates value. Um, and it's funny because people really get hung up on the financial side of things. Right. But I don't know, like, uh, I mean, I started saying how your name of your company sounds like a 1990s hip-hop group. Yeah. But it's like that old, you know, EPMD ethos. Right. You know, you hit the studio and you get paid in full, man, and that's yeah. the money. You got your hand full of, <laughs> of dollars to go home with, you know. Yeah. So where can you get that money? It's that the hustle 
is the beginning of the validation story, uh, which people can can then grow. But it's uh, it's it's really kind of heartening to hear the success of the early success of your company. Yeah, and and of course, you know, we are, you know, every company needs help at some point. Sure. Um, and we have had, and we continue to have really amazing advisors who've come from the industry who who know this stuff. Um, you know, and and at the right time, we're probably going to have investment or partnerships, and we do have some really interesting partnerships already in place that allows us to grow. So I'm, you know, not to say that you don't need help. It's just, it just puts you in a different position, especially when you're negotiating or, you know, even if you're trying to raise funds, it's different when you have a viable business model that's proven that, you know, to your point, you know what you need to spend in order to make. Yeah. And it's just a different ballgame in a different situation than being pre-profit. Being in business is very different than being, uh, you know, a business plan. That's a great point. Yeah. And like, yeah, when you're in business and you're operationalized, um, your headspace is completely different as an operator. You're operating, yeah. you know, so the mechanics of, of the business uh, is more clearly in front of you. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because like, I mean, I always rail on this kind of like Silicon Valley or Nouveau Silicon Valley kind of ethos that's corrupting the whole world and, you know, is based in mm-hmm. the fallacy of the open market and all this bullshit. But like... Right this get rich quick scheme yeah. mentality that people have yeah. um, gets them away from operating a lot of the time. It's actually, you know, yeah, you have to keep shoveling coal in the engine. Uh, if you're in the funding cycle, kind of conventional SaaS business model right? until you're at a series D pre IPO. Sure. And at some point the market's going to collapse, you know, I don't know, or sure. whatever. Anyway. So I, yeah, huge values for sustainable business practice. Yeah, that comes with uh, with being able to stand on your own two feet. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think it also teaches you sales, and I think that's that's the hardest part. I think that's the part that we've had to really learn sure. how to do because neither um, neither my business partner or I are born salesmen. Um, we've had to learn how to how to sell, and you know, at the same time, we've had to learn how to how to understand and identify people. Who we want to work with, who are the right fit, and not say yes to everything. And any tips for people listening on that note? <laughs> any tips for for the self taught salesperson? Uh, I think the hardest part, honestly, the hardest part is not wanting to please everybody. And I and I do think you know I know everybody will scoff when I say it's a Canadian thing, but it is a very Canadian thing. Did you hear our last podcast episode by any no, chance? No, I didn't. Okay, you should listen to it. <laughs> Yeah, we rail on this whole like Canadian apologetic behavior. Right, it it is it is true though because the moment we stop trying to please everybody and or even trying to please the the person who's buying because I just the 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 thing that I think really changed our mindset is that the person who's buying from you needs you just as much as you need them. There's a relationship there. It shouldn't Assuming be a one it's way a fit, yeah. right? So yeah. really, you're job and their job is to figure out if this is a fit if this is a fit then guess what they will find the money and guess what you'll be very happy working with them and you'll give them incredible value and the rest is history but how do you how do you know if this is the right fit and if it's not the right fit how do you become super comfortable with just saying this is just not the right fit thank you yeah but we're gonna walk away that's the hardest part because it just saves so much time and effort and then 
you know, your numbers start looking better, your close ratio is better, your cost, you know, for acquisition is lower because you just don't waste time on right. people who are never going to buy in the first place. Yeah, and ideally, I mean, at, at any point, everyone thinks of it the way I look at it. For the most part, no matter what you're selling, if you're um, new to sales especially, you start looking at things from day one as almost like, how can I articulate the value of what I'm selling to a customer X? Yeah. And the funny thing is, is that articulation, when it doesn't almost need to be done, yeah. is when you're hitting your stride. Yeah. And customer X may not be your customer, right? And yeah. customer Y uh, could fit a profile that's more uh, akin to not just your pitch, but your yeah. product. And, uh, and sales is really about aligning that value the way I look yeah. at it. Um, the people that really need an, uh, to use this as opposed to should want to right. uh, are completely different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, it's easier, I guess, when you're selling something for 300 bucks a month. It's difficult when you're selling an initiative for $100,000 or $500,000. So it's just obviously it depends on on who you're selling to and what value and how long the sales cycle is usually. But, but I do find that that makes a huge difference. What's uh, coming up in the next, I don't know, let's call it the rest of this year for Motive Base. Uh, yeah, we are about to launch a follow-up product to our existing product. Vikram 2.0. Vikram 2.0. Uh, it's actually called uh, Motive Base Evolve. Okay. And our existing product will get rebranded into Motive Base Explore just to add to the complication, just because we've basically built technology that can I specifically identify pain points that come out of product reviews. And as you know, people talk about all kinds of pain points and in the innovation industry, people love to use this framework that a Harvard professor created called Jobs to be Done. So this really aligns with that framework and it allows people to identify pain points in a matter of minutes. Mm quantify them, prioritize them, as opposed to, you know, again, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to do a project for it and, you know, getting people into a co-creation session and all of that stuff. So again, it's just continues with our mantra of trying to simplify, give these teams agility around this form of research, but also not compromise on the quality of the insights we're getting back. And in fact, improve it because of big data, we're actually quantifying a lot of these uh, data points that otherwise is impossible to do. Do you have a particular type of customer you're looking for now? Uh, is it just anyone with massive data sets that are looking for creative kind of ways to analyze that data or? Not necessarily, it's just anybody who is in an innovation or innovation related, research related role and their mandate is to either build new products or improve on existing products or build new brands. And um, so we end up working with a lot of, obviously a lot of Fortune 500 companies, but we also work with a lot of really interesting startups, for example, out of, this, uh, out of the Valley mm -hmm. that already have a really innovative position, but either need to defend it or need to fight against it. You know, a great example is there are a lot of companies that will launch a new product and you know one of the big five competitors will go copy it or mm -hmm. acquire you know another company that does what they do and suddenly you'll have five so-called fakes five followers in yeah. the market right yeah. at that point how does the startup sit there and go how do i now 
show the world that my brand can stand the test of time, uh, can and my product development can always be one step ahead of all these other companies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really interesting challenge because it's a huge challenge, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing: is like, I don't know, the conventional kind of approach, the hundred year ago business approach is really different than today. Yeah, it seems like it's less about the way I look at things anyway, I try and old school it, right? It's like, why are you in business? What kind of relationship do you have with your customers? And how do you express that want to have them in your life and vice yeah. versa, as opposed to kind of my technology does this. Yeah. Because it's so easy these days for anyone to copycat technology and be yeah. better marketers than the original source. Yeah. So if you can, if you can sell your product without marketing it, there's something there. Yeah. There's something there that you will have confidence about. Yeah. Um, but of course, there's many, many, many people still dealing with this idea of product differentiation in saturated or rapidly saturating markets. Yeah. And it's, it seems to be the reality in pretty much every industry now. So, so you guys provide that little kind of like a little bit of edge through data. Y- yeah. I mean, the edge for us really is focused on, on, product development that meets those unmet needs. We call them demand spaces for a reason. It's basically nothing but the consumer is telling us that they need something. It doesn't exist. So are you going to solve it or is one of your competitors going to eventually? I love that idea. I mean, you guys should just publish this. It's like kind of like <laughs> once a month, you know, do these five things. I know. As a, as a you know, entrepreneurship challenge. We should work together Maybe on that. Maybe if we were funded by university, we would do that. But no, we'll charge for it. The PhDs <laughs> yeah. cost too much. Um, okay, anything that you want to shout out to our listeners? Uh, we're going to keep this one short. I think I want to put you on a panel with some, some other AI people. Sure, uh, yeah, that would be fun. But, uh, but until then, yeah, anything you want to shout out, anything you guys are looking for as an organization from, from people in terms of new staff and anything like that, talent? Yeah, I mean, hiring is always an ongoing challenge, in particular PhDs who don't want to go into academia and uh, want to find a job that is just as challenging, maybe even more challenging, mm-hmm. uh, and just as intellectually stimulating, but without the BS of academics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, uh, hiring, yes. And then of course, you know, partnerships were, you know, Toronto is one place that we haven't done anything with a Canadian company. We have partnerships with American companies. Interesting. We just haven't done anything. And it's not for a lack of trying. It's just, nothing goes anywhere. We just have these meetings. And I, after a while, my business partner and I just said, we're just going to stop wasting time. If people want to get shit done let's get shit done otherwise let's just tell each other that this is not going to work right there's no fit here um so we would love to have and i know there's a lot of symbiotic relationships to be had in the toronto market there's some amazing companies out here just haven't figured it out yet what's the type of company that you'd partner with just in case anyone listening um so we we partner with both uh, um, analytics and research companies as well as uh, agencies so advertising agencies digital agencies we do a lot of work with uh, agencies in the U.S. Nothing here. Hmm. Excellent. So mm-hmm. that's a little challenge to people a little challenge listening to people. out there. There we go. Awesome. Any other shout outs? I guess where can people find more information out about what you guys do? And do you publish anything regularly? or We do. And they can go to motivebase.com, M-O-T-I-V-B-A-S-E.com. Uh, and, um, and they can you know, follow me on, on LinkedIn 
or add me on LinkedIn. It's uh, Ujwal or Kalgud, A-R-K-A-L-G-U-D. And other than that, just a shout out to your space. Look, we love this space. It's it it's inspiring for us and uh, not just being around other people who are also doing interesting things, of course. It sort of seems like the cliche thing to say, but, <laughs> but, but it's also it's there's true. something about good spaces, right? Right. Like good natural light, uh, spaces that just feel like there's an energy here. I don't know how else to describe it. it. feels like there's an energy here. We love that. Excellent. And um, yeah, people should come work here. I'm so glad that this is like, yeah, I'm so glad you guys are enjoying it. And also just yeah. for anyone listening, their team is typically how many people would come in when you guys do your weekly meetings? Is it four people that come to meet regularly? Uh, yeah, f- four and sometimes another four will join us depending on, yeah. So it's kind of interesting because yeah. you're one of our team's we don't have too many of that size yeah. that meet regularly, but that do flex. I mean, yeah. for anyone listening that does need a, a flexible architecture for space where your team can kind of come together, but they live across the city and That's you don't right. need the OPEX of carrying an office space. Um, these guys do it right and meet between our seven meeting rooms and yeah. our, what, is, what do we have? I don't know, over 10,000 square feet of common space or something. Yeah. So it's a fun place to hang out and get, get shit done apparently. Yeah, and we deliberately do it on Thursdays so that uh, we can then have a beer after. <laughs> yeah, that's coming up pretty <laughs> on, soon. On you, right? Cass? On me, always on me. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it was a pleasure. And uh, for our listeners looking for more information, we're going to do more uh, stuff this year into artificial intelligence, and we'll we'll dig into uh, Vikram's brain a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thanks, man. Cheers.